Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Good morning. We are in the middle of a series this summer, over the course of the summer, called The Church. And we're doing this to establish a biblical foundation. We want a biblical understanding of what the church is, who she is, who she's called to be by God, not by what we may want from her, but she's called to be by God, what her work is in the world. So we're in the middle of this series this summer. For some of you, this really might be the first time you've thought at any sort of deeper level about the church. Maybe you're a new believer. Maybe you got invited and you're, you've been coming for a while, but this is your first experience in something like this, in, in, in a church body. Maybe some of you have been coming to church since before you were born, and so for you, a Sunday without coming to church is abnormal. But for all of us, wherever you fall on that spectrum, my goal, my prayer for myself and for each one of us together is that by the time, as over the course of this summer, as we study what God wants from us, that we will grow in our love for this thing, which is the church, that our, that our, our passion and our drive to see the church uh, grow, as Mario prayed, but also grow in knowledge, grow in uh, unity, grow in love, all these things, that they would grow in our hearts, in our hearts, because Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church. Ephesians 5 tells us that Jesus came and lived a sinless life and died and was resurrected. All of those things, yeah, for us individually, but for his bride, for his bride, for the church, he died so that he might, he might purchase her. The church is a family. We've said that a lot now. The family is the predominant overarching descriptor of what the church is throughout the Bible. We are a family. This morning I've titled our sermon, A Rule to Live By. If you would, please stand with me. Our scripture passage, our primary passage is just one verse this morning. We're going to be looking at a few others, but our primary verse is just, just one. So I'd like us all to look at the screen together. I want to read this together, all right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. All right, let's do it again. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. One more time. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Amen. Let's be seated and let me pray. Heavenly Father, may our love for you be expressed in obedience to your commandments. And now I pray that we would be humble before you and allow us to evaluate our hearts, our motivations, our loves to see whether we truly love your commandments and are obedient or whether we put up with them, or endure them when we need to. May each of us live out this passage to love you and to obey your commands. Guide my words, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In eighth grade, I went out for football, and I was exactly this tall. I haven't grown a centimeter since summer of fresh seventh grade year. I came out onto the field, I weighed probably a little bit more than I do right now, and they had to special order a couple pieces of equipment for me because they didn't have any on hand, and they, the coaches were salivating. The line coach, 
I remember him saying, you're going to be a monster. I just remember him saying that to a, you know, new, you know, before my eighth grade year had started. That was really not something I'd ever thought about myself. Uh, But people thought I was going to be a monster on the field. But you know what? I wasn't very good. I stunk at football. People thought all these great things, and they put me on all the special teams. I was on offensive and defensive line. They tried me at halfback. They tried me at linebacker. They tried me in a whole bunch of different places. Uh, But you know what? I drove my coaches crazy because we'd have these things on our arm with all the plays, right? You maybe have seen them. There's a little short code for all the different types of plays, and you wear them on your arm so you know what's... I'd scramble them all the time. I'd just scramble the plays. It drove my coach, I remember Coach Fergrenick just pulling out his hair that I'd scramble these plays. Beyond that, honestly, I really wasn't a monster. On the line, you'd have a lot of time on the line getting ready in a game before you would hike the ball and the play would start. And honestly, there are a lot of nice people on other teams, so I would start talking with them. That was a, I met a fantastic amount of people just on the line in my position. Hey, how are you doing today? Are you in seventh grade or eighth grade? You know, what's your name? You know, I, I, I enjoyed talking with people that I was playing. It drove my coaches nuts. Then, this may be connected, but the fir- third and, and the final straw was I, I could never keep track of the count. You know, it's on something, you know, like blue for the two, you know, hike. I just always jumped. I was in the middle of a conversation. I could have sworn that the, the, the quarterback or the center, I can't even remember who calls it. I think it's the quarterback. Am I right? Is it the quarterback? I don't remember. I don't know. My wife would have better knowledge of football than I. I was busy talking. <laughs> and I jumped. So you know what? I ended up quitting. The reality is that football has certain rules that you just have to play by. You just have to. I mean, I remember in two days one time, my co- I kept jumping at practice on the count. My coach said, Nate, Bailey, get out of here. And he, he yelled at me. I started running. I ran the entire two days. She forgot about me. I just ran and ran and ran and ran. At the end of the practice, he said, I can't believe I forgot about you. I feel terrible. I was just not good. There were rules that had to be followed, and I wasn't good at them, so I I quit, and I ended up wrestling, which is a better sport anyway. (laughs) Just like my football team, just like my football team and many other things in life, every single one of you has rules that you live by, family expectations, codes of conduct, things that you expect. There have been a number of marriages this past year, and Aaliyah and I have had the privilege of uh, guiding dozens of couples through premarital counseling. And it's, it's a really one of the joys of our lives that we get to share doing that ministry together. And one of the things that's very common about premarital counseling is you have new couples Uh, a a guy and a gal coming together, meeting at your house, and you have to work through all these expectations, right? That's, that's, That's kind of what we could call premarital counseling. It's like reality check on expectations, a reset on whatever you're used to, whatever the rules that you've currently, that you have lived by in the past, whether it's like brand of shampoo or whether it's, you know, how early the church you're going to arrive or it's how many people you have over during the week, all these things. Premarital counseling, in in large part, is working through those things and, you know, picking up dirty dishes, hygiene, personal hygiene, you know, the hygiene of your boyfriend or your fiancé before you got married, what you thought, and then one week after you got married, what you know, all those kinds of things. Um, You know, with new couples get married, they they start developing sets of rules that they live by. That's why it's important the first couple years 
because you're setting rules that you're likely going to follow for the rest of your life. That's why it's so important that as you guys get married and start down the road of matrimony together, which is a wonderful thing, you, you, you establish the right rules, the right things. It's very important. Certain rules tend to be common among all of us. So if you uh, have any sort of family in your house, you expect the people that live with you to be honest. Does anybody here want to expect people to be not dishonest? It's, ridic- it's ridiculous. We all expect honesty. Uh, perhaps even we, respect, uh, we, we expect things like signs of respect, like maybe you know, waiting to eat before dinner till your mother has eaten or, or holding the door for someone. Uh, we all expect that, that, that you won't lie. Many of us probably have certain um, things that we share, like you know, respect for your mother in certain ways. Then there are specific things that really are probably unique to all of us. Um, so for instance, when I was growing up, Many years ago, we used to have this chair that would sit right next to the table. Um, dining room t- table chair? Absolutely not. Do not sit on that chair. It's an antique chair. Right? That chair is off limits. I think that back then, the college students would joke that they were going to get museum stanchions and rope it off with red velvet rope. Right? Um, that was, I mean, how many of you had a chair like that in your house? Not very many. Not very many. But we did. And we were expected, the rule of our home was, you don't sit in that chair. And if your friend comes over and goes to sit in that chair, you, you tell him to get out, right? And when we have company over, you take the chair and put it up in the attic so nobody can sit. <laughs> you know, it was a weird rule. But we all had these things. This truth extends beyond just our families alone. Uh, if I say two words, what do you think of? If I say, my pleasure, what do you think of? Right, you think of a restaurant down the street. Now, that company's developed a reputation not just for food, but for the rules that that company lives by, from the owners down to the cooks, um, down to the floor workers. And I use them as an example because they have this rule to live by that's known to all of us, and yet they're common throughout most, most organizations. So whether it's a family structure or, uh, or a family situation, rather, or whether it's your uh, first day in high school, or whether it's your first day on the new job, when you go into those new places, you know that there is some code that you need to live by. You know that there's going to be something expected of you. And often we want, to, we want to get it right. We don't want to go into any situation not really knowing what is expected. For a child, that's really hard to have a father or mother that never gives them any rule to follow. And so it's always a reaction that they don't expect right? You can maybe remember your first time at, at college going in as a freshman. It's like, what, what, what's going to happen? Like, who are my friends going to be? What are my teachers like? Am I going to be able to find the right classroom? On t- when does it, is there a bell around here? And we want to know what to expect. One of the wonderful things about Christian faith, one of the wonderful things that God has given us is the knowledge of what he expects. We haven't been left in the dark. It's hard when you don't know what to expect. It's stressful. It's unenjoyable. This isn't the case in the church family. There are things that God has chosen not to reveal about himself, but the things that he's chosen not to reveal, he doesn't call us to worry about. We shouldn't waste time worrying and trying to seek knowledge of the things God has hidden from us. But he has been very clear about what he expects from us. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Now, 
this verse that we read together is part of a dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. It's kind of in the middle. Uh, it's in chapter 14, but John 13 through 17, so 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, those five chapters are sort of Jesus' last will and testament. That's the way I, I view them. Chapter 13 begins with the setting of the upper room where Jesus goes with his disciples and he says, hey, you know, there's going to be this donkey, you rent this room, and we're going to, and then he does the Monday, Thursday dinner, the foot washing, it's where he gives them a new commandment to love one another. And then over the course, he talks a lot with his disciples. He ends up doing the high priestly prayer in John 17. And then right after this, this is all, if you have a red letter Bible, one of those Bibles that puts Jesus' words in red, uh, what you'll see is almost all those chapters are red, red words all the way through. So this is one continual narrative. This is not over the course of months or even days. This is a, this is a continual narrative, and it's kind of like his... his, um, his um, last will and testament to the disciples. Right after Jesus' prayer to his father, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over to the ravine, the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. Judas had already left. Remember, he said, do whatever you, whatever you do, go quickly. And it seems like Judas left. So Judas is is gone for some of that red-letter narrative. Jesus goes to the garden, and, and Judas knows it, and he knew the place where Jesus was going to be because he wanted to betray him. And Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Thus begins Jesus' journey toward the cross. The reason that I'm giving the context to all of us like this is that we need to understand that this is a very intimate moment with Jesus and the disciples. Right before he's going to be betrayed by Judas, right before he's going to be delivered into the hands of sinners, at the very threshold of his work that he's been born into the world to be done, he's laying out this rule for his disciples and for us, and he's calling us to live by it. Here's what I want us to know. Jesus is commanding obedience in the shadow of the cross. There is no confusion, there should be no confusion about how one becomes a, a disciple of Jesus. Jesus died to save those that are called and that respond in love toward him. It's by his stripes that we are healed. But Jesus is saying, if I've healed you, you will love me for that healing. And the proof of that love is going to be obedience to his commandments. Salvation by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ is not in conflict with the good works that we've been called to do. That is what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is teaching, right? He says, by grace you've been saved, not a result of the works so that you, bo you can't boast, but you are called to do works that I've prepared beforehand for you to do. So the grace of God enables obedience to the commands. It's not a justification so that we don't have to obey the commands of God. He's given us clearly a rule to live by. And listen here. This isn't new or novel. This isn't a one-off command. When Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments, this is just a, a, a reiteration again and again of a command that he gives time and time again. If we only look at like the, the, the three or four chapters on this side of John 13 and the three or four chapters on this side of John 13, there's, there's this command given many times. I'll just read a couple of them. So Jesus was saying to the Jews who believed him in, in him, if 
If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How about this one? Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Or he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, who does not embrace the things that I've taught and said, has one who judges him. The word that I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. Or Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. There were a few others. I cut them. There could be many, many more. This is only in a few chapters in the middle of John. In all these verses, there is a direct link between being part of God's family and obeying his word. You know, we, it's kind of obvious to say that sort of thing in the church. And yet, the Christian church in America, and we find so many ways of getting around this. I was just at the church in Northampton where Jonathan Edwards preached the gospel, saw a revival, powerful work of the Holy Spirit was done there. Uh, one of the greatest preachers in American history. And today, uh, we got a museum, a few weeks ago, we took a, a, museum, a, a walk through that church. And it sort of made you sick because they claim to be built on the foundation of Edwards and the gospel. And, and they take a lot of the things from the Bible and, and, and hang them up on posters around. And yet, they're not committed to the Bible. It's, it's clear from the, the roles of men and women, and it's, uh, you know, the, 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 they, they don't stand on Scripture when it comes to women in office, to the rainbow flag that is right next to the altar at the front of the church. It's just so clear in many ways that they've abandoned the Bible, and yet they, for some reason, can say, oh no, we stand on Scripture, and we're building on the heritage that Jonathan Edwards, they're blind. Or they only, they only take what they want they only take what they want from the Scripture. And I'm standing on the Scripture, these three verses right here. Do not judge, right? Or, or they read the Scripture, and they apply it, but only to other people. And so the Scripture comes in really handy when you have a life that's built on looking at other people. But Jesus doesn't... We are prone to this too, each in our own way. All right? We are prone to it too. Jesus doesn't call us to that. He calls us to wholesale obedience to his word. His word, not ours. Remember, if you love me, you obey my commandments, not my suggestions. It's his authority that's speaking right there. And this is what he calls us to. Run. Run from the idea that obedience to the Lord Jesus is in any way optional. Don't listen to those that teach that the cross of Christ is at variance with obedience to him. Jesus died so that we might be able to do the good works that he prepared beforehand for us. Jesus knows. He knows that we're dust. Psalm 103. He knows that we sin. He knows. And yet, he still expects us to live by his rule. He expects it from us. He knows we'll sin. He knows that we will fail. And yet, he expects you and me to obey 
his commandments. So Jesus has given us a rule to live by, and he expects that we live in it. And yet, and yet, there's this truth about all of us. And the truth is that we have this incredible ability. As the father of five children now, I've seen this thing in each one of my children. Uh, It's an innate ability that I haven't had to teach them. And at this point, I, I think it's genetic. It's called rebellion. Rebellion. Believe it or not, I've never had to teach my children to dump the plate of food from the high chair onto the floor. I know. Fantastic. I've never had to tell them to to not listen to me until my voice hits a certain decibel, and I've told them three times. I've never had to do that. I've never had to tell them to ignore my instructions the first time or to fight how to, I've never had to tell them how to fight with their sibling. For some reason, they just get it. It's amazing. It's amazing. But this isn't the case with my kids, after, after all. It's not just them. It's the case with all of us. We are born with rebel hearts. That's what the scripture teaches. We are born with rebel hearts. This morning, there are at least two types of people here. The first type of person hears Jesus' command to obey his commands. And then you start hearing the many instructions. There's over a thousand direct commands in the New Testament about do this, don't do that, hang out with this person, don't have anything to do with this person, be this way, not that way. There's, there's a lot of teaching in the New Testament. We hear these things. For some of us, we hear these things. We hear Jesus say, if you love me, you're going to keep those commandments. We don't want any part of it. We don't like the idea of anyone calling us to a standard of obedience. We're irritated at the thought of it. We think, yeah, you know, this isn't for me. I like my freedom. I like the ability to do what I want. I like my freedom. And if this is you, if this is the way you think, then at this part, you're, you're not part of the church family. This is not the way Christians think. There is no way that Jesus can be your Savior without being your Lord. That idea is, is a really attractive to many people. The idea of a comforter, a helper, a, a, a somebody who gets us out of gets us out of jail free, right? But, but that isn't, you, you can't have one without the other. Um, you, 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 you must accept Jesus' lordship and authority if you're going to have him be your savior who saves you from your sins. If this is you today, you're, you're welcome to come into the family of Jesus Christ. He calls you to do so. But you have to believe what the scripture says. The Bible is very clear. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's an authority statement right there. He's sovereign. He's in control. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Wow. Power. You will be saved. That's the first type of person. There's a second type of person. And the second type of person uh, is the kind of person that you hear what Jesus says about loving and obeying him, and you embrace it. It's like Mario's prayer of confession. Thank you, Mario, this morning. We, we hear what Jesus says, and we, we want to do it. But I, I want to ask you this morning. I want to ask you. Are there areas of your life where you know what's right, and yet you don't, you don't obey? There are, areas, are there areas where you know what Jesus commands of you? It's not, it's not hard to see. It's, it's, it's clear. There's an expectation And yet, in these areas, do you give yourself a pass? Do you have an area that's protected, that's safe from Jesus interfering and making a muck of things in your life? 
Is it the case that you're happy for Jesus in certain areas? Sure. But there are other areas where you're holding out. Where you, you're not going to let go. Maybe you're happy to obey him around certain groups of people. I mean, I've, I still am tempted to think this way. Yeah, it's real easy to obey Jesus' commands around these kind of people or when I'm at a space that's comfortable. But when I'm around these kind of people, I don't know, the whole dynamic shit, it just is a little bit harder to do what's right. Or maybe you're fine there, but you love the whole body. You love a lot of people, but there's a few people, honestly, that you hate. You just can't stand them. You just absolutely can't stand them. And you know that Jesus says to love your enemy. Nah. I love all these people. I think my love of these people, you know what? It justifies a little bit of hate. Don't you think? Don't you think that when Jesus looks at me, he's going to see all this immense love and this little bit of hate over here for these people? He can can deal with that. Is that the way you think? Or, or maybe, you're, maybe you're a great encourager. I have the gift of encouragement. I'm not saying I do, but I, I hope I do. Uh, the gift of encouragement. And yet you got a little side hustle of gossip on the side, right? And, wow, I'm, I encourage people, and I, I, I encourage people with my words. I talk a lot, but I know I gossip. I know it's, I know it's not right, but, you know, if you're going to encourage, sometimes you're just going to, some details are going to slip out there, and I, I just, that's the way it's going to be. We rationalize these kinds of things in our minds. The reality is that we're all guilty of doing this in one area or another. And I call on you as I call on myself to hear Jesus' words and to surrender your will to his rule for your life. Imagine the rich young ruler. Yeah, I'm going to follow you. I'm coming. Hold on. But you know what? I'm not selling the barns. I'm giving them to my brother to manage. Can you imagine how Jesus would have felt about that? Do you think he would have been cool with that? Do you think it would have been a non-issue? You know what? Let me me make sure my stocks and investments are safe. I'm coming in with you. Of course not. He's given us a rule to live by. It's a good thing. And he expects us to follow it. Just like any good family, a father has expectations of his children. He would be a bad father if he didn't. I have expectations for my kids. And I know they sin. I'm not saying that anyone here is going to live a perfect life. But what I'm saying is, I'd be a bad father if I expected my children to perpetually sin, to have areas where they just, that was my expectation for them. I expect obedience. I call them to obedience. And I live like they will respond in obedience until they don't. But why are we tempted to live this way? Why are we tempted to live by our own rule rather than Letting Jesus rule take over, whether it's in one area or whether it's in a hundred areas of our life. Why are we tempted? It's because we're all prone to believing a lie that is older than dirt. It's been propagated for years, and it's the most dangerous sort of lie because it's a lie we want to believe. I remember on my 18th birthday, a friend gave me a lottery ticket. 
And I don't care much for lottery tickets, and, and, but I started scratching it, and I was a bit surprised uh, that he'd, he'd get a ticket for me in the first place, but I, I started scratching it off, the numbers. And, and imagine my surprise when number, I, you know, there's a number of numbers you've got to scratch off in the first two match. Okay, well, let's keep going here. And imagine my surprise when I scratched off that last number and it revealed that I had won $20,000. You want to know how I paid through college kids? Lottery tickets. No, this is a joke. It's a joke. 20,000 bucks. I won $20,000. Except it wasn't real. It wasn't a real ticket. It was a fake. And he got me. I didn't want a lottery ticket. But when that thing was sitting in my hand and a couple of the numbers started matching, I started wanting to believe that it was true. I'm thinking, I can pay for college with it. I got excited. He got me really badly because I wanted to believe that this lottery ticket was true. It wasn't. It was a lie. The lie that we're all tempted to believe goes in two directions, and it sounds like this. Either on the one side, I will be happy if I live in the freedom of my own rule. That's the, that's the one direction of the lie. It goes in the other direction, too. I won't be happy if I live in submission to Jesus' rule. I will be happy if I live in the freedom of my own rule. I won't be happy if I live in, the, in submission to Jesus' rule. Both these statements are essentially the same bag of tricks that the serpent pulled on Eve back in the garden. That's how old and how prevalent this way of thinking is. There are two problems with the first statement, I'll be happy if I live in the freedom of my own rule. First, it presupposes something that's not true. It presupposes that we can choose between Jesus' rule on the other one hand and our own free autonomous rule on the other. That's what it presupposes. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And we need to live by what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that we were born in sin. It doesn't teach that we have the freedom to rule ourselves. It says we're born in bondage to sin and death. And we don't have an option of living a life that's free from submission to any rule. That's Romans 6. In 1979, Bob Dylan wrote a song. The title track off, Got to Serve Somebody. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may like the heavy, you might be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And you know what? Bob Dylan was right. There's no man that's free. Unfettered freedom to do whatever you want is not freedom. It's slavery. That's the lie that Satan tries to sell you. Unfettered freedom to do whatever you want to do is slavery. Slavery to your lusts. Slavery to your desires. Slavery to your stomach. Slavery to your passions. Ultimately, it's slavery to Satan. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. You may reject Jesus' rule, but you will live under someone's rule. You will be ruled by something. You don't have an option in the matter. So it's not so much a question of whether you're going to live under a rule. It's only a matter or a question of which rule you're going to live by, which rule you're going to live under. That's the question you have to decide. We're either slaves to our sin, to our passions, lust, money, power, greed, addiction, vices, whatever, or we're slaves to God. And we seek to live by his rule. The thing that you're guarding, protected, or protecting. 
You think it's under your control, but the Bible says that it's bondage. It feels really good sometimes, but it's like the, the ring with Frodo. You don't actually realize what's controlling what. It's bondage. The second problem with the first statement is that the happiness of those that seem to live by their own rules is hollow and empty. If I, I'll be happy if I live in the freedom of my own rule. That, that happiness is hollow. It's a mirage. It doesn't satisfy. Living by your own rules does not lead to happiness. This is the testimony of the prodigal son, isn't it? Isn't that what that story teaches us? The young man who didn't want to live under his father's rule, he thought he'd find a life of significance and happiness if he took his inheritance and he rode off into the sunset of boundless freedom. That's what he thought. He thought, I'm going to find significance getting away from my brother who's content to live with my dad. I'm going to ride off into that sunset and make hay. It's going to be great. It's not what happened. Short while after he set out, he realized that he had less freedom. Remember that word, where we want it, freedom. He had less freedom than the slaves in his dad's household. And he was free. He was doing what he wanted to do. And yet he thinks, oh, I'm going to go back to my dad because his servants are treated better than this. If this is freedom, I don't want it. He wanted happiness. And he found himself competing with pigs for scraps of food that were falling on the floor. That was his happiness. That's the testimony that Jesus gives to us. And honestly, you all know this. I'm saying it, but you already know it. In the areas where you aren't living by the, by the standard, by the rule, by the command that Jesus has set, you aren't happy. Can I say that? Will you listen? If you're honest, you really aren't happy. In those areas where you are fighting for your own control, you aren't happy. You're miserable. You're miserable. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil does not satisfy. If we look at the second statement, that you won't be happy if you live in submission to... Oh, I'm sorry. You won't be happy if you live in submission to Jesus' rule. The second statement. Is it up there? All right. Um, is also an equally a lie. Um, first, the promise of Jesus is that he came... Yes, he's in, he's, he has authority. Yes, we fall under it. But Jesus actually came to set the captives free. Just as we must die with Christ so that we might live with him, we must submit to Christ so that we find freedom. Satan says, you don't want the, his, his authority, his chain on you. Jesus says, I came to offer you freedom. I offer you life and joy and peace. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to live your life by? Whose word? In being obedient to Jesus' rule, real freedom is found. Freedom to live with the joy of forgiveness. Freedom to, to live in unity despite disagreement. Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's not a joyful thing to be able to live in peace and harmony with people even though there are things in life you disagree about. Those things don't have to become a wedge, an eternal divide like the Grand Canyon that separates you eternally from that other person. Freedom. Freedom to overcome worry and not be racked by your fears. Freedom from not being controlled by money. Freedom to have a conscience that's made right and at peace with God. 
That's what Jesus told the Jews. We back up from John 13, our passage, to John chapter 8. He's talking with a group of Jews, and he says, if you continue in my word, then you will truly be disciples of mine. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So it's a lie because Jesus actually is the one who gives us freedom. Under his submission is found true freedom. Second, the second statement is a lie because obedience to Jesus is the only thing that actually brings us true joy. That's the only thing that brings us true joy. The truth will make you free. I'm sorry. The, the, uh, um, there's another verse that talks about joy. I'm not saying that if we obey Jesus, every moment of every day will only be happiness. Jesus obviously speaks of the trials and the sufferings that accompany the men and women that, are, that make the decision to apply Jesus' rule to their life. He's clear about that. But, but, he calls us to obey, and here's the thing, we have to have faith. We have to have faith to know that joy will come in the morning. Jesus does promise that we will have joy. And when it hurts to obey, and all of you know what I mean by that, because all of you know that you've made decisions that stung. When it hurts to obey, you have to have the faith to keep going and trust that Jesus' way is best and that joy comes in the morning and that to, they, to those that hope in him, they will not be disappointed. Just a few verses after our initial passage in John 15, it says this, if you abide in me and my words and you ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. My Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit, so, and so prove to be my disciples, just as a, a fa- the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then, these things, these things, I have spoken to you. This is to the twelve disciples, and it's to you. These things... I've spoken to you so that something important is going to come after this. I've said all these things so that what? My joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So that Jesus did not teach anything arbitrarily. Everything had a purpose. He's given us a rule to live by. He's called us to obey his commandments, his word. And he expects us to obey so that his joy might be in us and that our joy would be made full in him. And you know what? His joy is going to be in us, but he also is going to take joy in our obedience. God is pleased. He takes joy in our obedience. He He commands it. He expects it, and he takes joy in it. This is the kind of church family that we must be. This is the kind of church family we want to be. It's the kind of church family that I want to be a part of, and I hope that you want to be a part of as well. Don't you want your joy made full? (laughs) That's why we try and do it on our own in the first place. Just we're buying a bag of lies instead of listening to the words of Jesus. Don't you want your joy made full? This is what Jesus promises. 
This is why he's given us a rule to live by. So we're, not so we're kept from fun, not so that we're kept from enjoying this life. Absolutely not. That, that's the lie. But it's so our joy may be made full. Are you willing to believe Jesus on this? Are you willing to trust him and obey? Trust Jesus, follow his rule, and you will find freedom and joy at every level and in every area of your life. That is, that's not my words, that's his promise. It's his promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word which serves as a light into our feet and a guide as we walk the straight and narrow road that leads to glory. And Father, I pray that there wouldn't be one individual here who decides to take the highway, the way that's broad, the way that leads to destruction. May we all take the straight and narrow road. We thank you for your guide. We thank you for your guideposts, for your commandments. We thank you for the individuals that serve as your voice in our lives at points. And Father, I pray that we would love you and that our love would be seen in obedience to your commands. In Jesus' name, amen.